You know what I want to release? Seats. <laughs> All right, well, and just before we do so, I want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we may hear his word this morning. So pray with me. Oh, God of Jesus Christ, we ask that you will give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. Father, we ask that you will help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Father, we ask that you will do that through the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. We pray all of these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us uh, hear the word of the Lord from Revelation uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I can, I can still hear the words. I remember as I'm learning how to drive, I'm going up 52, 52 e, or westbound to, to go home. I lived in Murphy Canyon at the time. And I remember my dad yelling out at me. I mean, he's not yelling out, but he's correcting me. He's saying, he's saying, focus beyond that. 
You see, as I was, as I was driving up the hill, my car, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going veering to the left and the right. I'm, you know, I'm going to the left and I'm bumping over the speed bumps here and I'm correcting and I'm going back to the right and I'm going over the speed bumps here. As my dad looks over at me, he says, no, no, Josh, focus beyond that. My dad looked at me, he, he saw uh, the major mistake that I was committing as I was, was learning how to drive. My vision was, was cast down front. I was looking over the hood of my car at the road directly in front of me in the back of the car right in front of me. So as, as the car in front of me would steer and move, I would steer and move to the left and the right. And, and my dad wanting to help me st- keep a straight path, he would say, he told me, no, Josh, don't, don't do that. Focus beyond that look to the horizon. And this morning, we're going to see that this advice, this focus beyond that, it's not just helpful driving advice, but it's rich biblical advice that's meant to, to have an impact on our daily lives. As we finish up our series on the ordinary, extraordinary church, we're, we're going to focus this morning on the church as a future hoping people. This is really a fitting conclusion to our series. You see, because we're called to be a people who are consistently focusing beyond that. Looking not to the, to the horizon, looking not just to our, to our own circumstances, not just looking at what's right in front of us, but looking to the future. Looking to the future hope that we have as God's people. See, the, the Bible calls us to be a people who are, who are looking for, who are longing for all that God will do for us in the future. You know, contrary to what some might believe, we're not called to live for our best lives now. But we're called to live in light of our hope for the life that's to come. And thank God, right? Because if your experience is anything like me, then you are just far too aware that you are not living your best life now. Things are not perfect. Maybe for you, just consider your, your living situation, your finances, or your health. Maybe for you, as you think about your relationships with your parents or your children, or maybe you're longing for these relationships, you're just instantly aware that this isn't how it's meant to be. Maybe when you consider the state of your communion or your, your lack of communion with God, your persistent struggles with sin, you can, you can quickly become discouraged, you can become depressed if all we're doing is focusing on the here and the now. At least I know that's my tendency. But as we turn to our text this morning, we're going to see that God wants us to help us direct our gaze, to lift our gaze, not, not staring at the car right in front of us, not staring at the circumstances in our life surrounding us right now, but to look to the horizon, to look to the future, to see what God has awaiting for us. This was certainly true for the first readers of the book of Revelation. I know we're kind of just jumping in here. So just for some, for some background here, you see the apostle John, who, who at this point in his life was exiled to the island of Patmos for being a Christian. He was writing to Christians who were suffering as they faced persecution. He was writing to Christians who were fighting against false teachers who were creeping into their midst. He was writing to Christians who were all too aware of the struggles to sin, the temptations to idolatry, the temptations to, to immorality. And led by the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter where we have the book of Revelation with the purpose of comforting and encouraging and sustaining them to keep going. And what's interesting is he does this primarily by pointing forward to what's to come. 
In the midst of their struggling, their suffering, and their sin, God wants to comfort, to encourage, and to sustain these Christians by giving them this glorious vision of the future. And church, the good news is he wants to do that for us this morning. In the rest of our time, I want to unpack two realities of our future hope, two realities that we saw in the text this morning that God wants us to know, that God wants us to desire, that we might be sustained in the present. The first reality we see is in verses 1 through 5, and it's that Satan, sin, and death will be defeated. Revelation 19 opens with this this marvelous scene in heaven of this great multitude who are crying out, Hallelujah! Praise God! They continue, they say, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. The great multitude is the, is the church triumphant. This is the saints who've completed their journey here on earth, and they're now in the presence of Christ. And here we get a glimpse into what they're doing. All day long, they're crying out, literally with a loud voice, they're shouting out, hallelujah. They're shouting out, praise God. So we want to ask why? why what's causing this? Why, why are they doing this? And in verse 2, we see why. We see, we see the, the cause of their great praise. Verse 2, they cry out, they're praising him because he has judged the great prostitute. In Revelation 17 and 18, yeah, it's a strange new world, right? <laughs> in Revelation 17 and 18, we see that this great prostitute is the, is the city of Babylon, there's debate about whether this city referred to the city of Rome at the time that the Christians reading this letter would have, would have associated with Babylon of old. Or maybe this, this great city, Babylon, is a reference to some future city um, that will play a role in the events immediately um, preceding Christ's return. The truth is we don't know um, exactly who this great prostitute, who Babylon the Great represents. But what John wants to make clear is that she represents the great enemy of God's people. The great prostitute stands against God, his people, and his purposes in the world. In verse 2 and 3, we see that she's corrupted the earth. She's seducing the nations to evil. She's responsible for the death of God's people, which he's avenging in this judgment. Now, now as we, we reach this point in the book of Revelation, we've been going for some time John wants us to see that this judgment of the great prostitute isn't just some event that's happening, or just some event that happens isolated from everything else, but we're to see this judgment of the great prostitute as a picture, as a foreshadow of God's ultimate judgment on his enemies. In the coming scenes in the book of Revelation, John's going to describe the judgment of the great beast He's going to describe the judgments of the kings of the earth who stood against God and his, perp and, and his people. In the next chapter in Revelation 20, we see the ultimate defeat of Satan. In, in the judgment of the prostitute, John is showing us that all that, it's like a microcosm. He's showing us that all that stands against God, all that entered into the world after the fall, is going to be defeated. And in verse 3, we see that this is an, an irreversible judgment. You see there in verse 3, it says that the smoke from her, the smoke from the city, will go up forever and ever. When God finally judges his enemies, they will never rise again. 
When Isaiah prophesied about this day, he, he writes that God will swallow up death forever. He's, he's literally going to defeat death forever. You know, I was thinking with, with, with Halloween a couple weeks ago, you know, all the horror movies start coming out. And, and it just hit me. It was just so grateful that this scene here in heaven of God's judgment of the great prostitute, it's not going to be like some horror movie where you think the villain is dead only to return again, right? There's a Halloween 2 or whatever, insert horror movie here, 2, 3, 4, and who knows where they're at now. But these, this, the pictures, these villains, they just keep coming back. They keep coming back. But that's not what happens here. In Revelation 19, we see that God's judgment is final. It is is irreversible. And so as the saints in heaven, as they're looking down on this final, ultimate judgment of all that stands against God, they cry out again, hallelujah. I really liked what one commentator said about verse 3. He said, he said that this isn't a mere repetition. He's not just, they're not just repeating themselves, but this is a this is a heavenly encore. You see, the saints in heaven can't control themselves. In light of God's ultimate victory over Satan, over sin, and over death, they just can't help but respond in praise and worship. This is our first reality of our future hope. Satan, sin, and death will be defeated. And as we come to understand this reality, we need to see that it's not just just meant to be some information that we store away, you know, where we're ready for Bible trivia and what chapter of Revelation is the great prostitute defeated. It's it's not why Jesus is giving this to us. But God wants us to have this vision so that it will impact our lives right now. God wants this reality that one day Satan's sin and death will ultimately and finally be defeated to help sustain us and keep us going as we live life under the clouds of the fall. And he does this for us in a couple ways. This reality here, it gives us us confidence in who our God is and who he is for us. We see here that God is going to keep his promise. Again, this this judgment of the the prostitute in in Revelation 19, it's not not separated from the rest of the Bible, but is intimately connected to the storyline of Scripture. Here in Revelation 19, we're being reminded that God is going to keep his promise from Genesis 3.15, where he said that he will defeat Satan. Where it says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We're reminded that God is going to reverse the curse. He will keep his promises. I don't know if you're here this morning, maybe questioning, questioning God, some of God's promises. Maybe, maybe just wondering, is God with you? I mean, is God present? Is God aware of what's going on around me? As we look to God's judgment of the prostitute here, as we look to God's ultimate judgment of Satan, sin, and death, we can know that God will never leave us or forsake us. As the lady in the video said, quoting you, and she was praying Psalm 23, which he was saying Psalm 23, we know that that God is with us in the midst of our pain and suffering. You haven't been abandoned. I know sometimes we can look around and our circumstances seem to be telling us a very different reality. They seem to be screaming at us that we're all alone, that God doesn't care, that he doesn't know what's going on. But as we look here, as we're reminded that God will keep his promises, we can confidently look to God's word and we can, we can know that God is a very present help for you, not just for others, but for you in times of trouble. 
Here we see that God is going to keep his promises. We have confidence in that. We also have confidence that God is going to keep us individually and corporately to the end. Here in this great vision in, in Revelation 19, we see that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he will win. We know the end of the story. We know that God will win, and we know that he will keep us. We'll finish the race that he set before us. God will complete the work that he began in us. This vision here, this reality, it gives us, comf- this gives a, it gives us confidence but it also gives us great comfort because we know that God's in control. We know that God is going to have the final word, so we don't need to fear. This vision here helps us to see that we're not meant to live life with this anxious anticipation that something really bad is going to happen. You know, always obsessing over worst-case scenarios. I don't know if you can get there, but I can get there quick. But this vision here, it helps us to, to, remind, to remind ourselves that we don't need to fear. We can face the unknown. We can face the many uncertainties of life with great comfort because we know that God is in control. As I was thinking about this message, I just remembered a, um, one of my professors in college. I went to San Diego Christian College. And one of the professors w- would end every single class almost in like benediction-like form. And he would just speak to us, you are a people of hope. Do not be afraid. He would say, you are a people of hope. Do not be afraid. I'm sure in the moment I didn't really appreciate that message, but that's really resonated with me this last week. This is what John's telling us here in this vision. He's pointing forward to our future hope, and he's comforting us, letting us know that we don't need to be afraid. So I want to ask you right now, what are the the uncertainties in your life? What are the realities of life that are tempting you to worry and anxiety? Is it a health concern? Is it a financial struggle? Perhaps you or someone you love is battling depression. Maybe you're concerned for your future. There's, there are major life decisions ahead of you, and you need wisdom. You're very aware that you don't have it. And this, it just causes this angst inside of your heart. Know, as you face these situations, that God is in control. God's purposes universally and personally in your life will come to pass. They will not be thwarted. God, not Satan, sin, or death, will have the final word. They won't have the final word in history, and they won't have the final word in your story. So receive this comfort. Don't be afraid, because we are a people with a great hope. This reality, it sustains us. It keeps us going. It gives us confidence. It comforts us. And it's also meant to increase our longing to experience this reality. Revelation 19, it helps us see that things aren't always going to be the way that they are right now. Because one day, God will finally and completely reverse the curse. He's going to make all things new. Our future hope is a longing for a day when everything sad will come untrue, as the great Samwise Gamgee puts it. That's, That's our hope. That's our longing. Everything sad is going to come untrue. The realities of Satan, sin, and death will be gone forever. No more to plague our life, our existence. Where do you need to hear that right now? 
I think for me over the last couple weeks as I've just, just witnessed in my own family the reality that in this fallen world, our bodies are subject to sickness, disease, and death. As I've been thinking about those in our own church family here who are all too aware of this reality right now, I've just found myself longing more and more for this day. Longing more and more for this day when our bodies, which are so frail and fragile, will be raised imperishable in power and glory, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14. Never again will we need another medical test. Never again will a, will a chemical imbalance, will a, will a physiological problem make it hard for us to get out of bed. Never again will we, be, will we struggle to, to be motivated to engage those around us. All chronic pain is going to be eradicated because Satan, sin, and death and all their effects are going to come to an end. This is what God is showing us in this reality here. There will be no more mourning. There's going to be no more crying, no more sickness, no more death. Are you, is, it, is it swelling up inside of you, friends? Are you, are you longing for this day? Maybe for you, it's not so much a physical struggle. But maybe for you, you're just aware of a, of a present struggle with sin. Whether you're fighting discontentment, maybe it's anger or bitterness. Maybe you just struggle with, with feelings of shame Struggles of regret, struggle with guilt, whatever's weighing down on you, as you consider this scene, let it increase your longing for this future hope where we will never experience the power or the presence of sin again. Church, we will never face temptation again. All forms of spiritual warfare, all of our battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil will be over. This is what verses 1 through 5 are pointing to. This is the first reality of our future hope, that Satan, sin, and death will be defeated. But this passage also gives us a second hope, a second reality of our future hope. And here in verses 6, and ten, six through 10, we see the second reality is that we will be with God forever. Let that sink in. We will be with God forever. Starting in verse 6, our attention is directed again to the saints in heaven. And just like before, we see this great multitude crying out, Hallelujah! Only this time we see that they're doing so louder than before. John tells us in verse 6 that their voices were like the roar of many waters, like the sound of thunder. You know, this isn't the worship that you would expect in a, in a traditional worship service. It seems like this has all the markings of a stereotypical rock concert here. And as we look to the reason for their loud praise... We see that it instantly makes sense. You see, they cried out hallelujah before because of God's judgment on Babylon. But now with their voices like the roar of many waters, they're crying out hallelujah again because of their anticipation for a coming wedding, the marriage of the Lamb. You see, it's their joy, it's their excitement for this event that prompts such loud shouts as they cry out, let us rejoice and exult. Let us be glad and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. When John uses this imagery of the marriage of the lamb, he's using a very common image from the Old Testament that God uses time and time again to describe his promise of salvation. 
God promises that he will be their faithful husband who will gather them, who will gather his people as his bride to himself, and he will be with them forever. We can't overestimate how profound this reality is. You see, the entire story, the entire message of the Bible is all about God dwelling with his people. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that Adam and Eve enjoyed this blessing and this privilege of perfect communion with God. But in Genesis 3, after disobeying God's word, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. Communion with God is lost. And from that moment on, the million-dollar question becomes, how can a holy God, who always desires and does what is right, dwell in the midst of a sinful people. You read Leviticus, that's how God is saying a holy God is going to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. But here, as we come to Revelation 19, at the culmination of the Bible's story, we see this very reality taking place. God is going to dwell with his people. And so we have to ask, how is this possible? How can God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And as we consider this, this question, it's important for us to not miss that this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Throughout Revelation, John uses two images to describe Jesus. He's the conquering lion and the slain lamb. In verses 1 through 5, we see this vision of Jesus as this, this conquering lion, the one who will come to judge. But here the vision is of Jesus, the lamb who was slain. This is a reference to Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. In Revelation 5, we see Jesus is, is worshipped as the lamb who was slain, who by his blood ransomed a people for God. Jesus died. He was the lamb who was slain to pay the penalty for the sins of all who will believe. But as we see here, it wasn't just an, that wasn't an end in itself. Jesus, Jesus wasn't just slain so that our sins would be forgiven. That was just simply the first step in God's plan to gather his people to himself. Where we will dwell with him. Where he will dwell with us. In verse 9, we see that there isn't just a wedding, but there's a wedding feast. As John continues in verse 9, we read, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we are finally in God's presence, we will experience the greatest wedding party ever thrown. I'm telling you, Pinterest has nothing on what God has in store for all of those who will believe. In the Old Testament, this feast, this supper, it's described as a celebration with rich food, with good wine. Yes, we'll drink in heaven. And where, and where all that would separate us from God will be removed. We will be God's bride, and we will be glad, and we will rejoice. But the amazing thing here, friends, is that it's not just the bride, the church, who will rejoice. We have every reason to rejoice, right? We, we look to the lamb who was slain, the one who accomplished for us what we couldn't do ourselves. But on that day, at that wedding feast, we will not be the only ones rejoicing. Because Jesus himself, the groom, will rejoice over his bride. Talking about this day, Isaiah 61.5, he records these mind-blowing words. 
It says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The prophet Zephaniah, he paints this this picture of God's delight and joy in his people, just culminating as he rejoices this, as he sings over his people. This isn't a marriage of convenience. This is a marriage of great love and affection. We will finally be in God's presence. We are going to experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore that we were created for. God himself will rejoice over us. I don't know about you, but when when I think about this reality, I find that that my, my heart just begins to beat a little faster. I find myself just aching and desiring to enter into this experience right now to finally be where I belong. What about you? And the, the truth of the matter is this reality, what we see here in Revelation 19, is what we were made for. This is what we were created to experience. This is what our hearts long for. But because of the fall, because of sin, as John Foreman has put it, we were created for a place we've never known. But on that day, on that day, when we will be with God forever, we are going to sing out again with John Foreman that this is home. Now I'm finally where I belong. C.S. Lewis, I think, captures this feeling for us perfectly in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. He does this through the experience of Jewel the Unicorn. After realizing that he's in the new Narnia, an allusion here to, to Revelation 19 and 21, the new heavens and the new earth, he cries out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. This is my real country. This is where I belong. So I want to ask you this morning, are you searching for a place you belong? Are you aware of a desire in your heart for something that you can never seem to find? Perhaps you've tried much of what the world has to offer only to find that it never keeps its promises. It never truly satisfies. If you feel like you can relate, then I just want to ask you to consider these words again from the great saint C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes this. He says, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Do you see what he's saying? In light of this longing that we all have, this deep desire, this desire that's deep in our bones, this desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, Lewis is telling us we have that and nothing can satisfy it because we were made for another world. You see, we weren't created to be satisfied with the things that this world has to offer because we were created to enjoy. We were created to be satisfied with something much bigger, with something much better. As Revelation 19 is showing us, we were created to be with God. 
As Augustine teaches us in the opening prayer of his confessions, he says that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. If you're here, if you're aware of this restlessness in your soul, aware of this, this desire that nothing in the world can truly satisfy, I just want to invite you to look to Jesus, to find your rest in him. He's the only one who can satisfy your desire to belong, your search for meaning and happiness, because he's the one that you've been created to enjoy. God has made us for himself. And in Christ, through his death and resurrection, he has made the way possible for you to come to him. The marriage supper of the Lamb points to the second reality of our future hope, that we will be with God forever. Let's just briefly explore how this, this reality can help sustain us in the present. And I think, think more than anything else, I believe that this reality this vision of this time where we will be with God forever can help us to reframe or to reinterpret our present circumstances. You see, it gives us a biblical perspective on all of life. And this morning, I'm particularly aware on how it affects our suffering. Thinking of this message, I just kept coming back to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. You might want to go there in your Bible if you want. 2 Corinthians 4. Because this truth can so transform our experience of life in this fallen world. This might be something that you're going to want to, want to underline, highlight, or circle if you do that in your Bible. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, in verses 17 and 18, we read, we read these words. The Apostle Paul writes, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, or for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want to read verse 17 again. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we were reminded last week, this, this momentary affliction that Paul experienced here, it included beatings, attempted murder, living in constant danger for his life, often without food, without sleep. And if this wasn't enough, and if this wasn't enough, Paul carried heavy burdens in, in, of his anxiety for all the churches that he helped start. And Paul, looking back on all of this, all of these things that would have had me curled up in the fetal position in a corner somewhere, Paul looks back on all of them, and he calls them light and momentary. And what is it that's, that allows him to do this? You see, Paul was able to reframe his present circumstances, especially his suffering, in light of the Bible's teaching that one day we will be with God forever. One day we will experience what Paul calls here the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is why his suffering was light and momentary, because it paled in comparison to the future hope that he had of being with God forever. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. By no means am I attempting to minimize any of the suffering or abuse that you might have experienced in this world. 
In this fallen, sinful world, terrible things happen. Hard things happen. It's not the way it's meant to be. But as we face these things, God's wanting to do something for us in his word. He's wanting not to minimize our suffering, but to maximize our hope for heaven. God wants not to minimize our suffering, but to maximize our hope of heaven. In this way, this passage can function like a, like a telescope for us. You see, a telescope, it makes things which are huge, but appear tiny to us, appear more like they really are. You know, when you look through a telescope and you see the Milky Way or the moon, it's not making them, them larger. It's not like a microscope where you take something really small, you look at it, and it makes it huge. No, when we look at a telescope, what it's doing is it's, is it's taking something that is huge, but that so often we minimize, so often we, we look at as being far away. And he's making it appear more like it really is. So I just want to ask you, where do you, you need the telescope of this future hope to help you put your current realities in perspective? Are you experiencing suffering right now? Is your life just, just plagued constantly by a physical spiritual or emotional suffering? Are you just constantly weighed down, heavy with suffering in this fallen world? Are you experiencing significant relational struggles right now? Where are the uncertainties of of life weighing down on you? In a way that doesn't minimize your suffering, let this hope, let this passage maximize your hope for heaven. Look into the telescope of Revelation 19. See and know your future hope so that it might make a difference, so that it can make your present circumstances seem light and momentary. Not because they're not real or important, but because, but because as Paul says in Romans 8, because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Friends, we are going to be with God forever. Second, this reality can help us. It it can just remind us again, I know I need to be reminded of this again, that our true satisfaction is found only in Christ. If you're here and you find that you've just been looking elsewhere for your satisfaction, just let this, this passage, this future hope, allow you to turn back to find your satisfaction in Christ. Because this passage reminds us that the best is still yet to come. It shows us that while the best is still yet to come, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can experience the fullness of joy and pleasure of being in God's presence now. And lastly, let this future hope, this promise that we will be in God's presence, let it compel you outwards with the good news. Friends, we know what people were created for. We know what they're longing for, what they're searching for. And we can give it to them in the hope of the gospel. In the hope of the good news that in Jesus our sins are forgiven. And even more amazing, in Christ we are welcomed into God's presence where we will be with him forever. So just think, and and, and, gosh, Thursday is Thanksgiving. We have the the holidays coming up as you might spend time around distant relatives or family and friends who might not know Christ. Just use these as opportunities to to truly care for them. 
You know, forget about politics and sports, or at least don't dwell there in conversation. But ask good questions. Help them to see that they still haven't found what they're looking for. And then show them Christ. You know, there's a, there's a British author, his name is Julian Barnes. He just wrote this, this poignant sentence that I'll never forget. He, he, he's, um, he's written a number of books that have been made into movies, but in one of his novels, he just writes this sentence. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Church, this speaks to the reality that all of those around us in Christ are experiencing. The doubter's doubt is that there is a God and that he exists. And we know that we were created for this God. So those friends, those family members you're going to be around, those coworkers, those friends at school, just know that they are all living with this angst. They might be the most vehement opponents of Christianity, but the truth is we know what they're longing for. They might not believe in God, but they miss him. In church, we can offer that hope in Christ. We can point them to Christ. So my dad told me, focus beyond that. As we live in this fallen world, dealing with the struggles, suffering, and sin, God has given us this vision of our future hope. He's calling us to focus beyond that, that we might have hope, that we might be sustained in life in this fallen world. As we close our service this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is a gift that's been given to us to remind us of our future hope. Each week in the words of institution, we hear the phrase, until he comes. As we receive the bread and the cup, we're viscerally reminded that one day in our resurrected bodies, we will sit at the table with Christ. We will be joined with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In church, we are going to feast We will be celebrating Christ's victory over Satan's sin and death, and we will enjoy the perfect communion with God that we were created to experience. Never again to shoulder the weights of living in this fallen world, but forever living in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. So as the band comes, as the ushers prepare to serve the elements, I just have two brief words of instruction. First, for those who are here who have yet to trust in Christ, I do just want to thank you for coming again this morning. I'm glad that you are here. But we would ask that you would let the trays with the bread and the cup pass you by. Um, no one's here to judge you, but this, is a remind, but this is a meal for those who have trusted in Christ, who are living now in this hope. But as you pass the trays with the bread and the cup, I would just encourage you this morning to take Christ, to look to him as the one who has bore the judgment that we deserved, who has drawn us to himself so that we might be in his presence forever, experiencing life, experiencing the reality that we were created to enjoy. Take Christ this morning. For all the the believers here who will be celebrating together as the trays come, um, grab the bread and the cup, hold on to them, and we'll celebrate together. But as you do, church, let's celebrate in hope this morning. Let's look around, let's celebrate and hope at the reality that we will be with God forever one day. We will feast. And this meal here this morning is just a foretaste of that coming feast. Let it fill you with hope. Ushers, you can come.